Looking for a graduation gift to inform, inspire, and encourage? When you give a subscription to Christianity Today, you're giving redemptive, relevant news and thoughtful balanced dialogue about the church, current issues, and public theology. Visit orderct.com slash graduate gifts to get a discounted student subscription for the graduates in your life. Starting at only $2 per month, this gift will engage and grow their faith throughout the year. Click the link in the show notes or visit orderct.com slash graduate gifts to order now. is the Church Law Podcast, where you can get practical solutions for today's leaders. I'm your host, Erika Cole, the church attorney. Welcome back to the Church Law Podcast. My name is Erika Cole, known as the church attorney. Happy to be with you here again. As of the recording of this podcast, we're in the midst of the holiday season, which is a special time of year. And We are now starting a brand new year. So happy new year to you and yours. This is a really exciting opportunity today for the podcast because I have with me Matthew Brana, who is an attorney and content editor for Church Law and Tax at Christianity Today. He leads an award-winning team of editors and designers with the planning, creation, and publishing of churchlawandtax.com and numerous print and digital resources. We were together in a former episode for a Q&A last season, and excitingly, you all really loved it. You asked us to do it again, and here we are today, back for another Q&A session. So welcome back, Matt. Thanks, Erika. It's really great to be here. Congratulations on just the continued growth and success here for the podcast. It's really been a lot of fun to be a part of and to watch. And you've done just a wonderful job as far as the topics you're hitting and the people you're bringing on. And then obviously the great insights that you're providing. So it's great to be here. I appreciate that. Well, obviously the church law and tax team, you first among them are critical to making this all happen. So thank you. Well, we have a whole list of questions. And to be honest, I don't know if we'll be able to get to them all. And I just want to say thank you to you listeners. You reach out, you send me emails, you ask questions, you tell us how you're enjoying the podcast. And we really, really appreciate it. So as our get to you, we're going to try to answer some of your questions. Um, So we'll start with this first question. What are the steps to dissolve the church and where do I find this information? So that's a fantastic question. In my, I guess, 24 plus years of representing churches through all their life cycle, I've helped churches to form and plant new churches and throughout the life cycle of growing and expansion and what that means. And I've also helped churches to go through the process of dissolution when that's been necessary. So maybe I'll first start with answering the question of what does it mean to dissolve? Because that is very much a legal term. And it is the legal process of winding down and ultimately the process of eliminating the official legal life of the legal entity of the church. So that means that just as and probably with the same organization that you incorporate it with, 
presuming that the church is incorporated. And that is broadly known as the Secretary of State. So normally incorporation begins with the Secretary of State. Likewise, any dissolution would happen through the Secretary of State because dissolving means discontinuing the legal entity. So you'll start on the state side and you'll find that information through your Secretary of State of wherever your church is located. And then secondly, I want to point out that even though dissolution happens officially on the state level, there are some federal considerations that you'll want to know and you'll also want to take care of. So if your church exists and it has an employer identification number, which is generally necessary for creating a bank account, you'll also want to cancel that EIN through the Internal Revenue Service. So that's step two. First, you're going to file the Articles of Dissolution, and that happens through the Secretary of State. Secondly, you'll want to cancel an EIN, the church's EIN. And thirdly, if the church also has applied for and received tax-exempt status, you'll likewise need to go through the process of canceling that status through the Internal Revenue Service. So where do you find this information, which is a part of your question? It will be through the Secretary of State or whatever state your church is located in. And also it will be through the Internal Revenue Service. I will go to irs.gov for that information. I also want to point out in the merger series that I did with Church Law and Tax and ultimately the Church Attorney's Guide to Mergers, which I recently published, I talk a bit more about this in detail. And so I would want to point you to those resources as well. Matt, anything you want to add there? No, I I think you've hit all all the key highlights. And as you pointed out, you have the church merger article series, which we'll include in the show notes. And then along with that, I know you also did a podcast episode, I believe, on church mergers as well. So we'll we'll look forward to pointing people over there. The steps to start a church or, or merge a church oftentimes are the same steps that you need to be thinking about if you're winding down operations too. So those will be useful insights for everybody listening. Fantastic. And we'll include all those resources, including my guide on mergers in the show notes. Next question, any legal guidance for mentally ill and potentially violent people that desire to come to church? This is a huge question. And I have to say that I've seen more times than I can count on both hands, unfortunately, security incidences at church because the doors are open to the public. And we can't always know or control who comes through the doors. There was actually a recent incident at a church in our area where a mentally ill person came in to the church with a hammer and attempted to attack the pastor. And that was literally in the past two weeks. These incidences are... Unfortunately, increasing, I think, as we see increasing mental health challenges. So it is very important that churches make a plan. So the first thing I would recommend is that every church have in place a church security policy. Again, when you're in a crisis, that's not when you're going to want to try to figure out what to do. And having a church security policy that you have in place and that people know 
how to utilize is going to be critical. There are also some considerations, at least around this question, because I think there was the additional detail of if a person has made earlier threats. And Matt, I think that with that particular detail of a person who's made earlier threats, there may be some additional legal considerations. Could you speak to that? That's right, Erika. It, it, what it starts to do is it starts to put into play this idea of foreseeability. You know, if a church is aware of somebody who's made a specific threat against someone at the church or the church in general, and if they include specific details or specific actions that they plan to take, that's serious. That needs to be noted. Um, typically, in those instances, it's really important that as a first step, the church notify local law enforcement and consult with them and just talk through that with them. Other factors are going to be important too here. One is, what's the history of this person? Have they known this person a long time? Have they been known to say these kinds of things? And it tends to not be something that's followed through on, for instance. You know, those factors need to be considered. But really, what, what's most important here is to understand if someone makes a specific threat, you need to take it seriously consult with law enforcement, have people on site who, when the person arrives, can monitor that person. And in fact, it might be even good for them to go up and welcome them and and help them in and have them sit just to indicate that they're noticed and that they're welcome and that they're there and being observed. And I remember a church leader one time relaying a story in which someone came in, they had not made a previous threat, so that's a little different, but nonetheless, they looked threatening. And they were likely intoxicated. And so there was a discussion amongst those on the church security team. Should we just pull this person out right now? And the decision was, no, let's welcome and then let this person come in and sit down. They did. And they proceeded to sleep through the entire service. (laughs) And so no threat developed. There was no serious ramifications. And there wasn't some kind of ugly scene that was needed to play out as far as that person was concerned. So. It does require being you know, discerning as far as the situation, the circumstances, but do just keep in mind, if you know about a threat up front, you need to be responsive to it and take some action to make sure that you're able to respond if necessary. Know that physical force should always be a last resort, but if the need warrants, then the need warrants. And that example you gave with the individual and the hammer certainly is one where you would say, well, we, we're going to need to restrain this person based on what they're about to do or trying to do. Mm -hmm. And the last thing I would add, those are very good points, Matt. The last thing maybe I would add in circumstances where I've been legal counsel to a church and they've reached out to their legal counsel, I would encourage you to do that. If you have legal counsel, do make use of that because there have been times when I've had to advise my clients, we're not going to allow this person on property because it, it was a significant enough threat that could have been damaging to many people. And that was the ultimate decision because church is private property. So even though it's open, it is private property and you get to decide if someone you know should not be there for security reasons. So good question. All right, we're going to move to the next question. And that is, what is the best way to honor ministers with monetary gifts? That's a good one. I have to say that no matter what I'm speaking on, when I've been invited to do a training for a church organization, for a denomination, no matter what the topic is, ultimately, 
this question of monetary gifts for ministers or as some organizations refer to it as love offerings, it always comes up. So I will say I did actually write um, one of the church attorney guides that I wrote for this very reason is called the Church Attorney's Guide to Love Offerings because it is a serious topic. It comes up all the time and it's really important that we know the answer. And so it's important to know that, first of all, in couching the issue, I love that the desire, the heart desire of the giver here is to be a blessing to the minister. And that's just a great heart space. I think the first thing we would like to do is if the minister is not on salary, if the minister is not actually receiving a predictable and salaried income, that would be the first thing from the church. That would be most ideal. And related to that also is a significant benefit that is specifically for ministers, which is the housing allowance. The housing allowance is it's based on the tax code and it allows income that is given for salary to not that particular portion that's for the housing allowance is not taxable. So that is a really important consideration here. The general matter though, is that if it's money that's being provided to someone in the course of their work, the IRS generally sees it as income versus maybe what your intention could be is As a collective congregation, when you're giving to a minister, you may think of it as a gift or, you know, there are other terms that we could use like honorarium or stipend. You know, these are the words that we may use. But ultimately, if someone is receiving money as a result of their role, the IRS generally sees it as income. On the other hand, if I just happen to have a fantastic relationship with my leader who happens to be a minister... And it's his birthday and my husband and I are taking him and his wife out for their birthday. You know, you could certainly argue that that's more of the gift environment. But when we're rallying the church overall to make a contribution, then that starts to look more like income rather than a gift. Matt, anything you want to add there? I think you've hit some really important points, Rika. I, I think CPA Elaine Somerville, she's written a book for us called Church Compensation. And chapter 12, she deals with some of these types of scenarios. And it comes up oftentimes around the holidays, right? You know, we want to honor people, uh, pastors in particular at Christmas time, for instance. And you're exactly right. Just because we want to label something a gift doesn't take it out of the zone of still being taxable for the recipient. And so churches just need to be mindful of that and recognize that. As you've pointed out, there are those circumstances where a congregation or members of a congregation may just directly go to the minister and want to do that, you know, individually or one-on-one. That gets murkier as far as the tax treatment of that. The minister in particular needs to be mindful of how they're receiving that and then how they wish to report or not report it. If it's still kind of under this understanding that they've provided services, that still kind of veers into the tax zone, Right. If it was solicited by the minister, that is going to certainly start to draw the attention of of the IRS. So it's just really important on any of these kinds of scenarios that often come up in churches that leaders just understand oftentimes these will be taxable. And on those rare occasions when they're not taxable, it's probably wise to still consult with legal or tax counsel just to make sure. Yeah, that's good. Thank you. Next question. 
how does the church's involvement in politics potentially impact the church's tax-exempt status? Matt, you want to take the lead on that one? Absolutely. I think, you know, this is a question that obviously is, it's wrought with tension, right? We're in a moment that we see, especially across the country, a high degree of volatility and polarization when it comes to political matters in general. And then certainly if you add in the element of church, that just amplifies it all the more. We actually hosted a webinar not too long ago that brought in some of our legal advisors from Church Law and Tax, also brought in some pastors and theologians to really wrestle with the question, should churches get involved with politics or get political? And you know, ultimately the takeaway is, well, what's your church called to? What is God calling you to do first and foremost? Mm-hmm. And then how do you unpack that further with respect to your constitutional protections? What, you know, what a church is able to do under the first amendment in particular. And then at the same time, also understanding the tax code and what does the IRS say about political activities. And we'll put in the show notes, a link to the webinar recording. It's a really great conversation. I really encourage all leaders, regardless of where you find yourself on the political spectrum, to listen to it. I think there's learning there. And I think in learning, it informs and helps guide future decision-making. But to the specific point here, as far as the tax uh, exemption that churches receive, what I would just offer here is this. One is that your tax exemption is automatic. That's just part of our nation's structure, the constitutional protections that churches receive. Churches, if they fit the right criteria for a definition of a church, they receive tax exemption. And then through the 501c3 portion of the tax code, there are provisions that limit what, what can be done by 501c3 entities like churches when it comes to politics. You cannot specifically endorse or oppose political candidates. That's just something that's been pretty explicitly stated in the code. Churches oftentimes think, okay, well, then we can't get politically involved. And and in truth, that's not the case. You can still be involved, involved in the public square, especially on political matters or issues. So ballot initiatives, things that deal with issues related to the community, the well-being of the community. You know, if a church feels that there's an important matter that's come before their community on any variety of fronts, could be affordable housing, could be the legalization of marijuana, it could be on a wide variety of topics. If a church feels like it should be engaged in some way in that, there is room within the tax code to do that. The key is just that it doesn't become a substantial part of the activities. That's where it can still trigger some degree of tax exemption jeopardy. So just know that there are some rules there. You want to be informed about that. But in the end, what it really boils down to is understanding what is the moment call for? What is God asking us to do? How do we respond to it? And how do we do so in a manner that demonstrates thoughtfulness, mindfulness about our role as churches and also our role in the community? Yeah, no, that's really good. I think you've really covered that well. And I think different churches may come to a different conclusion based on their calling, but it's important to have all the information in front of you. Thanks, Matt, for that. Next question, accepting crypto gifts and donations, how should they be treated if you hold them or sell them? And what infrastructure or policies should a church have? I feel like we could dedicate an entire discussion to this. And I guess, in fact, in some ways we have. I did have an earlier episode. It's actually episode 10. And we'll include that in the show notes as well. 
It was called Cash, Check, Cryptocurrency, and More, Why Churches Need More Giving Options. And we had a great guest from World Vision with us in that episode. So one, I'll point you to that because it is a big discussion and we we won't be able to unearth everything at this moment. But first, I would say it's important for every church to have a donor acceptance policy. The donor acceptance policy is really the place where in advance, your church will decide what donations it will receive and how those donations will be handled. Cryptocurrency obviously is still new. And I guess maybe I would say altcoins broadly are still new. Right now, as we're recording this podcast, there's been FTX completely went bankrupt. It was an organization that like, I guess, Coinbase, where people purchased cryptocurrency and they went belly up and folks lost all their money. Side note, I actually just sold my cryptocurrency yesterday at a loss, but I'm like, I I think I'm just going to let this go. So we're all still figuring it out. I mean, it's the bottom line. And I think that whenever you deal with these kinds of things, you have to I think it's going to be with us in, in some form going forward, but it is still new. And ergo, some of the legal treatment and some of the challenges are still being worked out. But your church should have a donor acceptance policy where you decide in advance whether you're going to receive crypto or other alternate altcoin donations. Same to be said for property or boats or any other kind of thing other than cash. So that's where your policy will come into place and serve you well. And then I I would want to point you to that episode with some other thoughts and ideas about maybe if you do decide to go forward and receive crypto gifts, um, some considerations there. Anything you'd want to add, Matt? You've hit the the key highlights. We do want to make sure people go and check out that episode of the podcast. So we'll include that in the show notes. We do have a good article too on the website that we'll include in the show notes that goes a little bit further into cryptocurrency, how the IRS views it, how it's treated and so on and so forth. But obviously a really important topic as we see people moving increasingly towards these new payment methods. So really glad that you're raising it here and and it doesn't surprise me that someone asked about it. All right. Next question. I'm going to ask you to chime in first on this one, Matt. Potential intellectual property liability for churches that use others' lyrics and music on social media platforms. So this is combining, frankly, several legal concepts in one question. So intellectual property and then intellectual property liability and then the use of music within the church context and moreover on social media platforms. So there's a lot to unwind, um, but if you want to give it a start. (laughs) (laughs) I'll try to dive in. I'll try to keep it relatively simple. I think that a lot of times churches find themselves in trouble because they make some assumptions about what they can and can't do with material in general. So I'll take a a little bit higher level view, not just you know music that's copyrighted that might get streamed through an online service, but let's just talk about copyright in general and how churches interact with it a little bit. And the places where we see it most commonly are the website for the church, e-newsletters, and social media, where they might put out something that they saw written by an individual that they think is really interesting and they want to pass along. Um, that information is probably copyrighted. 
You can't just grab that and post it on your site or push it out through email or social media unless you get permission from the copyright holder. Same with images. This is a huge issue. Churches oftentimes think, oh, I'll just do a Google image search, find something that looks really good for this particular topic, and then save it and then drop it in and away we go. That's not advisable. Oftentimes that imagery is owned by a copyright holder and you will eventually get found out. So be careful about how you're interacting and using those kinds of mediums. And then um, more importantly, how they're intersecting with your specific church. Now, to the point about music and services, and I would also throw in here like movie clips, right? Those come in a lot of times in church services or clips from television shows or other things. Again, the same rules apply. You need to have permission from the copyright holders before you um, use those in a public setting. And most especially when it's being broadcast through an online service. Now, music in worship services where the congregation is singing, you know, those types of situations, uh, again, copyrights apply, but you're usually getting licenses already for the permission to use those songs in your services. And oftentimes when you're securing those licenses, there's an option for you to extend to get the protection you need for having those go over the web. So look into that as you look at your different licenses and keep that in mind. But on the whole, like the rule of thumb that I always keep in mind is until otherwise shown differently, always assume anything that you find that's not your church's specifically is someone else's and you can't just use it unless you get permission from them or maybe even pay them to use it. Yeah, no, I think that's great. You covered that very well. Well, we're running out of time, Matt. So I'm going to try to get in maybe two or three more questions. We'll do it in rapid succession and then we'll have to save maybe the rest for another time. Great, great. So this next question is, please share your thoughts on how a church should handle church property tax exemption. And I'll try to do that in about 30 seconds or so. The first thing is to know is that just because your church owns the property doesn't necessarily mean you already have property tax exemption. I think knowing that is half the battle. I've seen a lot of situations where churches literally have found themselves in tax sale. And they're like, how did this happen? And it happened because they assumed that when they bought the property, because they are church, they're exempt. No, every state, every locale has requirements on how you apply for property tax exemption. And so make sure you are aware of that, that you go through that process for every single property that your church owns. And so absolutely not sure exactly what you mean on how you should handle it, but I think the first thing is knowing that it's not exempt just because you're a church. It gives you the potential to the opportunity to apply to be exempt. And then the second thing is do make that application. The third thing is there's often a time frame as well from when you acquire the property and when you need to apply for exemption, because there may be, if you don't do it within that time frame, you may have to pay for a certain tax period six months or a year before it kicks in, that exemption kicks in. Anything you want to say there, Matt? All great information. The only other thing I'll add is that those property tax exemptions oftentimes need to be renewed. So remember that just because you apply and then receive it for a particular year doesn't mean that you can set it and forget it. You have to, on a oftentimes annualized basis, go back and renew that. 
And that requires making sure that the property is still being used for exempt purposes. So keep those things in mind and obviously uh, work with your local property tax assessor through that process. Fantastic. Next question. The common issues I'm bumping into relate to church HR matters, employee versus contractor, et cetera. So I understand. (laughs) I understand. I echo the sentiment that one of the biggest issues and challenges that churches have relate to HR matters. And so the first thing I would say is be mindful and ensure that you have the proper worker designation. Meaning that a lot of times, it's been my experience that churches want to have someone be a independent contractor because obviously for tax purposes, they don't have to worry about taking out taxes and remitting them to the government and all those kinds of things. But just because you want them to be a contractor doesn't make them a contractor. The IRS has very specific indicators of what makes someone an employee versus a contractor. And as the folks might say in some other contexts, spoiler alert, often the person is an employee if you are controlling when and how they perform the service. So making sure that you have the proper worker designation is really important and becoming increasingly so. Um, Next, I do want to make sure that you know we'll pop in the show notes an earlier podcast that we had on HR matters for churches because it'll get a bit more in the weeds than we can do today. Anything you have there, Matt? Only other thing I'll add is that, you know, the Department of Labor has been trying to, it has an independent contractor rule. Depending on the presidency involved, there's oftentimes efforts to try and change that rule. There was a rule proposed by the Trump administration that after the Biden administration took office, tried to withdraw was going to help try to further define who an independent contractor is for purposes of the work that they do or the kinds of engagement they have with the uh, with the employer. Unfortunately, it's just a really murky subject and we have, haven't really gotten clarity. So we'll include a link to that article that we've done on that whole development in the show notes. It does include some of the factors, generally speaking, that can kind of help you understand who an independent contractor is. But just know that yeah, it is going to be a little bit uncertain as far as how to how to make those classifications. And oftentimes, it's really important to have some legal counsel to make the determination with you if you're just really not sure. Mm-hmm. That's good. Last question: Are there any forewarnings in leasing church space to a daycare center? Yeah, that's a good one. So quickly, I will say: Anytime the church is leasing space. You want to make sure that you have a written agreement for that purpose. And this can vary based on whether the church owns the space or whether the church is leasing the space. So starting with if the church actually owns its own space, then again, you're definitely going to want to have a, a written lease. If you if the church is has a lease itself, then you need to make sure that you review that lease to see if in fact you can sublease the space or a portion of the space to someone else, often your lease will speak to that and you'll want to make sure that you're not running afoul of your own arrangement. So if you're going to have a extend a lease to a daycare center, A, I think it's important that you do have something in writing so that everybody knows where the boundaries are. Secondarily, you want to consider however your church building is set up, how much access do the daycare center workers, 
the children who are there have access to other portions of the building because you'll want to make sure that things are well secured to that effect. Matt, I think you have more to add there. All of what you stated, really important considerations, really, really good. And along with that, I think that because it's going to occur on your property, quote unquote, right? Whether again, like you say, you own it or you lease it, you want to make sure that you have the daycare center document and demonstrate what's the screening selection and supervision and training that they put any of their workers or volunteers through as it relates to the prevention of abuse, right? That's a key issue going on unfolding throughout the country. And so uh, what we really need to make sure is that those processes are in place because in the end, if it still happens on the church property, it's still going to involve the church at some point if there is an unfortunate incident. So having that document is really important. And then along with that, asking the daycare center to provide proof of insurance, generally just insurance as an entity, but then along with it, the proper insurance coverage that's needed in the event of some kind of sexual misconduct claim. So those are the other kind of key points that came to mind for me. But as you pointed out, you know, it's really important to understand just how is this going to impact other church activities and events that are going on in the church. And so there's a lot of considerations to certainly keep in mind. Yeah. The liability of what it means to operate a church, they're very different than the liabilities that can be associated with operating a daycare center. So you'll want to make sure that you, as you suggested, check your insurance and then be an additional insured for the daycare center. That's right. That's right. So we've got to end here, Matt. This has been fantastic. Thank you so much for joining me again for this wonderful Q&A session where we were able to answer listener questions. We appreciate you being with us. Thank you so much for having me. Really great to be here. Great work here that you're doing, Arika, and helping churches. Thank you. And thank you for listening. If you found value in the Church Law Podcast, please leave a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and a short review so that other church leaders can benefit from this valuable resource. I'm happy to be your host, Erika Cole, the church attorney. And you can learn more about me and how I serve churches and access some of the resources referenced today at erikacole.com. That's E-R-I-K-A-C-O-L-E.com. for listening. If you found value in the Church Law Podcast, please leave a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and a short review so that other church leaders can benefit from this valuable resource. I'm happy to be your host, Erika Cole, the church attorney, and you can learn more about me and how I serve churches and their leaders at erikacole.com. That's erikacole.com. Podcast is brought to you by Church Law and Tax, part of Christianity Today's podcast network. This podcast is designed to provide accurate and authoritative information in regard to the subject matter covered. It is provided with the understanding that the host and the publisher are not engaged in rendering legal, accounting, or other professional services. If legal advice or other expert assistance is required, the services of a competent professional person should be sought. Due to the nature of the U.S. legal system, laws and regulations constantly change. Listeners are encouraged to consult with legal counsel to verify the information provided here remains current. Visit churchlawandtax.com for more insights.